Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to Behind the Knife. I'm Michael Vu, and joining me with the BTK team today is John McClellan and Megan Akashup. Before we begin today, just wanted to put in a plug for our YouTube channel. We've recently been making a big push to put out some great content on YouTube, including the new procedures series that I think will be a big help for medical students, interns, really anyone looking to brush up on some of the basics of procedures like central lines. And don't forget to check us out on BehindTheKnife.org. I've recently made some good updates to the site. And of course, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, so follow us there. All right. With that out of the way, I'd like to introduce our awesome guest today. He's Dr. Travis J. McKenzie. He's an associate professor of surgery at the Mayo Clinic, specializing in both endocrine and metabolic and bariatric surgery. He's the assistant program director of the general surgery program, as well as the clerkship director for the medical school at Mayo. Quite the list of responsibilities. It's also my understanding, Dr. McKenzie, that you've won several teaching awards. So all this to say, we're clearly learning from the best here today. So Dr. McKenzie, I actually learned about you from Dr. Greg Pierce. He's an army surgeon who recently finished fellowship at Mayo. Any shout out? for Dr. Pierce? Greg's fantastic. As you probably know, he's in Syria right now, stationed in Syria. Sent me a bunch of pictures recently, but he was one of our recent MIS fellows. Just a fantastic guy, just a gentleman through and through, a great surgeon, as you guys well know. Awesome, awesome. And can you tell us briefly, uh, Dr. McKenzie or Travis, do you mind if uh, if we uh, we call you Travis on the show? Please do, please do. Travis, what what can you tell us about your background? Where'd Where'd you grow up? Where'd you do medical school? How did you evolve into the surgeon that you are today? I may be the first Alaskan guest you guys have ever had on the podcast. I'm not sure, but I grew up in Alaska, uh, born and raised there, left Alaska to go to college in Minnesota. And then finally, I uh, went, to, went to medical school out in Boston before matriculating as a resident here at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Um, spent a couple of years in the lab here during residency and then ultimately decided to do two separate fellowships, first in endocrine surgery, and then finally in metabolic bariatric surgery. Did both of those in Boston and MGH and, and, and the Brigham respectively before returning to uh, clinical practice here at Mayo. Wow. Two fellowships. One, one wasn't enough for you. What, uh, what drove that? I sort of fell in love with endocrine surgery to start. I was a third year resident here. I thought for sure I was going to do liver transplant actually, but did the endocrine rotation and fell in love with the clinical aspects and the, the the sort of physiologic scientific aspects of endocrine surgery. So I I changed my mind and that, that is what I was going to do. Went on to do a bariatric rotation and really fell in love with that. And so decided there's no reason not to synthesize these two things. It it sort of makes sense based on the science. It's all sort of endocrinology, endocrine surgery. The biggest, uh, the biggest, uh, the biggest endocrine organ in the body is the gut. A lot of people don't realize that, but it is. And if you think about sort of endocrinology as a whole, the people that manage sort of bariatrics and obesity, those are the endocrinologists. So it's really a great synthesis. The procedures are very distinct from one another, but actually they enhance each other, as, as I hope you'll see. With the MIS aspects of endocrine surgery, like adrenal and pancreas, the ability to do those procedures, it's really enhanced by having that background in MIS surgery. Oof, okay. Well, well, you got me excited. Um, and th- you're right, that does, uh, that does make sense in a way. Uh, so, you know, we brought you onto the show today. Uh, we're talking about uh, adrenals and adrenalectomy today. So I wanted to just dive into a clinical scenario and, uh, and get you talking. So suppose... Suppose a 30-year-old female walks into your office. Um, last week, she went to the emergency room. She had some, some belly pain, and well, they told her that she had gastritis, but she also happened to have a three-centimeter mass in her right adrenal that they found out on a, on a CT scan that they got, and uh, they advised her to seek further outpatient care. 
So, you know, first things first, I imagine you have a well-practiced differential in your mind uh, whenever you're um, confronted with, you know, in adrenal incidentaloma. Uh, for a medical student or a resident encountering an adrenal mass like this, what should we be thinking of? That's a good question. So the first place to start really, and the place that I like to start whenever I'm talking about adrenals or lecturing about adrenals, is how common are incidentally discovered adrenal masses? Because if something is really darn common, then you expect it to be there. If it's not, then maybe that's going to raise your antennae a little bit more. As it turns out, adrenal masses, so incidentally discovered adrenal masses, are relatively common. Um, in the literature, roughly 4 to 10% of any cross-sectional imaging study will have an adrenal incidentaloma. And if you think, you know, 4 to 10%, that's not a huge number. But here at the Mayo Clinic, we do roughly 50,000 CT scans a year. So as you can see, it's, it, it doesn't take long for that to add up. And what I always tell my medical students and residents is you are 100% going to encounter these things. The question is, are you going to recognize it? and know what to do with it, but you will encounter them. So this, this sort of a topic I think is relevant, not just for surgeons or endocrine surgeons, really for any type of surgeon who deals with a cross-sectional image, and even more so for emergency room doctors, gynecologists, internists, really anyone who's dealing with cross-sectional images of the abdomen. Again, you're going to encounter these. Um, and then after I encounter a patient with one, so this 30-year-old this female, as you mentioned, there's really kind of two key questions you have to answer with any patient with an adrenal mass. Number one, is the thing producing anything? Is it biochemically functional? And number two, does it look like a cancer or can, can you rule in or out cancer? Those are the two big questions. And those are also the indications for surgery incidentally. The indication to remove an adrenal mass really is boils down to Number one, is it producing anything that's going to be harming the patient? Number two, does it look like a cancer or can you exclude cancer? If either of those answers are really uh, concerning, then you're going to potentially take that adrenal out if the patient's a fit operative candidate. All right. And so I imagine that those that you, you uh, when you first see this patient, you know, the questions that you're asking, the physical exam maneuvers are you're trying to suss out, suss that out. So what exactly are you uh, are you asking the patient and what are you looking for on your exam? Yeah, and what I always tell the medical students, always start with history and physical. That's absolutely the appropriate place to start. We always get caught up with, first thing I'm going to do is order labs or another CT scan, but always history and physical because that will oftentimes help kind of lead where you're going with the rest of your workup and it'll narrow your differential. So as far as patients with adrenal masses in particular, just starting with history, there's a couple very relevant things. Um, so certainly family history is relevant because certain types of genetic predispositions will predispose a patient to an adrenal mass. So some common ones are multiple endocrine neoplasia, both type 1 actually and type 2. We always think of pheos with type 2, but type 1 actually predisposes to cortical lesions and cortical cancer. You think about neurofibromatosis with pheos, von Hippel-Lindau with pheos, SDH mutations, MAX mutations. There are a bunch of them that are relatively rare, but you always want to dive into that family history because, again, that can help lead you down the road of is this a pheo or something else. Then you want to think about does the patient have a personal history of malignancy themselves? If they do, the chance of that mass being a metastatic deposit goes up substantially. So that's also very relevant as far as history goes. After you've sort of uh, gone through the rest of the history for the patient, of course, you want to ask about history related to symptoms of biochemical productivity. And there's really kind of three key things we think about with adrenal masses as far as biochemical productivity and symptoms. Number one is aldosterone. So aldosterone leads to uh, increased hypertension and potentially hypokalemia. So you take a good history in regards to hypertension and hypokalemia, what medications are they on, when do they develop hypertension, things along those lines. You think about cortisol excess and Cushing's, 
And so you want to take a really good um, history on sort of changes they, they've developed morphologically. And a lot of times the, the family members of the patient themselves have noticed changes of weight gain, fat redistribution, among other things. You can look at a picture from two years ago till now, a driver's license, for instance, and notice changes. You look for other stigmata of Cushing syndrome, the dorsal cervical fat pad, moon facies, central obesity. And then you can do some other exam maneuvers to, to look for things like proximal mu muscle weakness, um, among other things. You want to think about uh, symptoms of pheochromocytoma, which uh, the term is paroxysmal there. So they don't have usually consistent symptoms, but they may have paroxysms of things like headaches, uh, palpitations, tachycardia, anxiety, uh, flushing and diaphoresis. Now, all that being said, most, most times you'll take a history and a physical exam on a patient with adrenal mass. And what you realize is actually they have no history and no symptoms at all. Cause we have to keep in mind that 90% of these things are going to be non-functional. And so truly incidentally discovered adrenal masses come in completely asymptomatic. And uh, you know, like I mentioned before, this was an incidentally discovered mass. The, the patient walks in with a CT report or you can see it on your, on your computer um, what, what kinds of things are you looking at when you're, when you're browsing through that scan? So that question kind of depends on what type of a scan they got. As you know, not all scans are equal. Um, scans uh, can be phased in different ways. Some of them are non-contrast, some of them are enhanced scans, PO, IB, et cetera. And, and so it really kind of depends on the scan I'm looking at. Uh, what we really like to see with adrenal pathology is what we call an adrenal protocol CT scan. And if they didn't have that in the ED, frequently I'll get that when I'm seeing the patient, just to sort of delve into the further characteristics of adrenal masses. What an adrenal protocol CT is, it's uh, really a CT that's focused on the adrenals with very thin cuts. You know, a lot of people think CT scans are just, you know, buzzing through a patient straight through and you're getting every single millimeter. That's not the case. You're getting, you're getting cuts like you're, like you're slicing a loaf of bread, so to speak. And so with an adrenal scan, it's usually two to three millimeter cuts. Uh, the adrenal masses can be very small and they can be missed if, if the slice thickness is too great. So thin cuts is number one. Number two is we really like to see a non-contrast enhanced scan. So we take a scan before the patient's given any IV contrast. That's very important because we like to see the density of the mass. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. That's very important in density. Number two is we get uh, a venous phase and a delayed phase to calculate washout. Now with those things, we can usually tell pretty reliably is this a concerning adrenal mass or not a concerning mass? And that answers that second question, is this malignant or can we rule out malignancy? So the things, more specifically to your question, you asked me, what am I looking at? Most importantly, on the non-contrast cut with an adrenal mass, I look at the density in Hounsfield units. Now, that density is a very reliable predictor of is this concerning or not concerning. It can't tell you specifically if this is a cancer or a pheo or a met, but it can tell you if it's not. If the density is less than 10, and that's the magical number, if you're listening to this podcast and that's the only number you get out of this, 10 is the number you should get out of this. If it is less than 10, the density, that will reliably not be a cortical cancer, it will not be a pheo, and it will not be a met. In the history of Mayo Clinic, we have never had one of those three things with a density of less than 10. And so if it's less than 10, it's benign. You can stop right there. That doesn't mean you're not going to take it out. You might if it's producing something or is symptomatic for some reason, um, but it will be benign. And so that non-con density of vital importance. 
We talked a little bit about um, uh, contrast phasing. So we get a venous phase next. And the venous phase is really good for looking at the anatomy of the adrenal gland. So on the right side, you can see the inferior vena cava, oftentimes the adrenal vein on, on uh, the most up-to-date type scans. You can look at the relationships to, of the adrenal to the liver, the kidney, the renal vasculature. Gives me a good idea. Could this thing be locally invasive if it is a cancer or a few potentially? Um, and that can help sort out that question for you too. And then finally, we get a delayed phase, which is usually 10 to 15 minutes after the venous phase. And you're, what, what you're trying to sort out is how much contrast is that adrenal gland washing out over time? Things that are more concerning, like these METs or FIOs or ACCs, they're going to hold on to contrast very avidly. They have a high capillary density, so they're going to hold on to contrast and they'll wash out less, whereas benign things tend to wash out more on delayed phase. So those are kind of the key things I'm looking at on the adrenal protocol CT scan. And that being said, sometimes a patient comes in through the ED and they get a, a renal stone protocol scan or whatever scan they get. And I can tell exactly what the thing is by looking at it. So I don't always get that scan, but I would say if there's any, if it's equivocal at all, I'll get that adrenal protocol scan. That goes to my next question. So say someone did walk in with a stone protocol or even MRI for whatever reason, MRCP or something they got done. What is your pathway normally if you can't tell on imaging? Is it, do you need dedicated imaging of that adrenal? Yeah, I would say um, particularly if it's at all equivocal and I can't tell for certain what this is or more importantly, whether or not I need to take it out because I can't, I can't reliably um, predict malignancy, then oftentimes I'll get this, this, the, the adrenal protocol CT. I would say more often than not. But again, sometimes you get something, a CT or MRI for whatever reason, and you see the things like a myelolipoma, which has very pathognomonic features. And I can look at that and I can say, no matter what kind of a CT scan the patient got, that's going to be a myelolipoma. There's nothing else to do. We may take it out if it's causing mass effect or it hemorrhaged um, or, or it's growing substantially, but, uh, um, uh, but usually we'll get that adrenal protocol CT. And what does that look like, by the way, Travis, the myelolipoma? Yeah, so generally, it's a, essentially a myelolipoma is a tumor that's composed of both lipid elements, so macroscopic fat, and then myeloid or bone marrow elements. So it looks like kind of a marbled structure. They can be small, they can be large. I've seen them up to 18 centimeters, but it looks like a marbled structure and the density of it is very low. Uh, usually the density is around negative 50 or so, which is the density of fat. If you look at a CT scan and you look at the uh, abdominal wall fat, the subcutaneous fat, it, it has a similar density or darkness to that fat. So very low density. And again, that's pathognomonic. Almost always you can look at that and tell without any other uh, fancy imaging. And uh, maybe the last question that I've got about imaging, but CT versus MRI, uh, any, any word about that? I prefer CT scan. And now MRI um, can also very reliably tell you if something is concerning or not with, uh, with advanced MRI protocols. So an MRI is a very good study and it does have its, uh, its indications. You know, a patient who can't get a contrast load, for instance, um, is a good indication for that. And there are actually a couple of things about MRI that, that make it beneficial over CT scan. If I'm operating on a patient with an adrenal cortical cancer and it has a very close proximity to the venous structures like the inferior vena cava, an MRI tends to be a little bit better for determining, number one, is that invading the vascular structure? And number two, is there a tumor thrombus in the IVC or renal vein, which can often happen with adrenal cortical cancer? Um, when you get a contrast-enhanced scan, a CT scan, there's contrast mixing in the area where the uh, right renal vein flows into the cava. And with that contrast mixing, it gets very hard to sort out, is that a tumor thrombus or or something else, MRI is pretty good for that.
Um, almost always, however, personally, I prefer a CT scan because density, again, is exceptionally reliable. And I think as surgeons as well, this is kind of a, maybe not the most intelligent answer, but as surgeons, we're very good at looking at CT scans. Yeah. You guys may be like me. I look at an MRI and, and I have there's a too many, to there's out. too many, yeah, there's too many different, uh, you know, weight, weighted images and different right. kinds of studies on there. I never know what I'm looking at. Yeah. But, but it is a good study overall. So shifting gears from imaging workup, you know, what you said, the one of the great things about endocrine is that there's pathways for the biochemical physiology. Uh, but that also means that those are great absite and pimp questions. <laughs> so what is your process in ordering the labs, um, interpreting them, and, and just how to um, go about working up the biochemical aspects of someone with a adrenal mass? It's a great question. And it's a very confusing thing to think about when you're learning it because there's a lot of different studies you need to order and sensitivities you're thinking about. So I think the easiest way to boil it down for someone taking the ab side or a medical student is to just think about the layers of the adrenal gland and then think about what you need to work up based on those layers. You know, the layers are often a common question on the ab side too. So kind of going from out to in, the glomerulosa is the first layer that produces aldosterone, that can form tumors that produce aldosterone. So we'll start with that layer. With that layer, you need to rule out Kahn syndrome or an aldosteronoma potentially. Um, as far as who you do that in, it's really anyone with an adrenal mass and hypertension. If they have an adrenal mass without hypertension, they won't have an aldosteronoma. Patients with, with primary aldosteronism do not present with normal tension. But anyone who has hypertension, you have to rule that out. And the way you do that is you're going to get a plasma aldosterone concentration to a renin um, and then take, take the ratio of that. Usually a ratio of roughly 15 to 20 is very suggestive. Importantly, the renin has to be suppressed because it's a primary problem, right? The tumor is producing aldosterone that should suppress the renin. So the renin should def definitively be less than one ratio, roughly 15 to 20. If you've... Um, sort of made that uh, or supposed the diagnosis with that biochemical value, the next step is to confirm it. What you're gonna do is you're gonna salt load the patient, either by having them eat a bunch of salt or potentially saline loading them. Then you're gonna get a 24 hour urine study. And with that 24 hour urine study, you're gonna confirm they have enough salt in their system to make it a reliable test. And you're also gonna test your, their aldosterone level in the urine. And the reason you're testing in the urine is because you have to obtain the urine to get the salt uh, measure. Now, if someone loads with salt and they don't have an aldosterone problem, their aldosterone should suppress. You're sort of enhancing that negative feedback loop. Whereas if aldosterone is still high in the urine after you salt loaded them, that makes your diagnosis for you as well. It confirms your diagnosis. So next layer, and after the glomerulosa, next layer is the fasciculata, and that produces cortisol. And tumors can grow there, and they can produce cortisol. And so any patient who has an adrenal mass needs to be ruled out for autonomous glucocorticoid production. The best way to do that is with a one milligram overnight dexamethasone suppression test, which also goes to that method of testing the negative feedback loops. We love to do that in endocrine surgery. So you're giving them dexamethasone, and in a patient with no problem at all, that whopping dose of dexamethasone and one milligram is a, is a fairly substantial dose that will essentially shut down the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And the next morning, the patient will have a very low cortisol, less than 1.8. Whereas if the cortisol the next morning is greater than 1.8, that is a very high sensitivity for suggesting autonomous glucocorticoid production, either Cushing's or subclinical Cushing's. You can confirm that diagnosis with a 24-hour urine-free cortisol. You could do late-night salivary cortisols. We rarely do that here, but you can. Um, 
You could also potentially uh, do an AM and a PM cortisol test looking for the absence of diurnal variation. Cortisol is usually high in the morning and then low in the evening. If you're testing AM and PM, you should have a lack of that variation. It should be high both in the morning and the evening. The reason we don't do that is that's tough to do in an ambulatory, ambulatory patient, right? It's tough to test a PM cortisol when someone is at home. Um, salivary cortisol has largely replaced that test. One could also do a high-dose 8-milligram dexamethasone suppression test. We do that occasionally, but that's more unusual. Usually, the 1-milligram will make the diagnosis for you. You're also going to want to uh, check an ACTH. ACTH in someone with an, a primary adrenal problem should be low. Again, that's the negative feedback loop. The adrenal mass is producing cortisol. It's shutting down the hypothalamus and pituitary and preventing it from secreting ACTH. Next layer in is the reticularis, so sex hormones essentially. Most of these patients generally don't present with, you know, or, or the diagnosis is not made on biochemical evaluation. Most of these patients present with physical findings that are found at a younger age. So rarely do we work that up in a patient who does not have these physical findings. That's usually not something we're gonna order. The final layer in the middle layer is the medulla, which is responsible for producing catecholamines. And so uh, there are really two tests we talk about. There's a little bit of controversy here. The first test is a 24 hour urine catecholamines and metanephrines. And the second test is a plasma metanephrines. Well, the first thing to say is plasma metanephrines is what you get. You're not going to get a plasma catecholamines. I have a lot of residents say plasma catecholamines. Catecholamine has an exceptionally short half-life. And if you test that in someone's uh, plasma, it may be falsely elevated because the patient, let's say they were nervous at the time you tested it. They saw a bear run down the hallway or something. Whereas if you test it when they're very calm and they have a FIO, it may be very low. So uh, what you want to do is test the plasma metanephrines, which is a stable breakdown, a more stable breakdown product of the primary catecholamine. So the question I'm often asked is, which is the better study? And there's a lot of controversy, even among endocrine surgeons. You ask one surgeon in an institution, they'll say the plasma test. You ask another, and they'll say the urine study. Uh, the short answer is, we believe here it's the urine study. Now, the reason why is the plasma metanephrine test, it's very easy to do. You check a blood test. But the problem is it has a 15% false positive rate. And so essentially what that means is if you take 100 patients with adrenal masses, and let's say we just know none of them have pheochromocytoma, we test 100 of them, 15 of them are going to have a positive study. And so the next step in that group of patients is you get a 24-hour urine. And so what we sort of uh, do here is we test the 24-hour urine, which generally we're getting anyway for the, for the cortisol access to. And so we're going to test that 24-hour urine. Uh, that's a better study because it doesn't have that 15% false positive rate. And that's sort of the biochemical workup in a nutshell. I will say that uh, it's not always a, as black and white as the Absite uh, book makes it seem. A lot of times there's some interpretation that goes into this. Uh, we have wonderful endocrinologists here that do a lot for us in that regard. We work very closely with them. There's, there's one final study I wanted to mention. It's sort of a newer study we're doing here. It's uh, urine metabolomics. So we all remember that crazy steroid synthesis pathway we had to memorize in medical school that makes your head want to explode. Mm -hmm. So essentially what we do here is you can test someone's urine over 24 hours and you can reliably predict if that mass is a cancer, an adrenal cancer or not, based on the steroid precursor buildup. 
as you guys know, cancers tend to de-differentiate and they lose their ability to produce the end products of those steroid pathways. And so they build up the, the precursors. And so what we do is we essentially test for those precursors and try to determine um, if that has a, a sort of a profile that fits with cancer. And you can reliably do that actually. So I think this is an up and coming thing that'll be in the next uh, set of guidelines. Arena Bancos is one of our uh, great endocrinologists here who's been working a lot with that. I just have one follow-up question regarding the biochemical workup. Is adrenal vein sampling at all come in to play anymore, or is that kind of phased out? No, yeah, there, there, there are, there's a very common scenario and then a less common scenario. The, the very common scenario is really most patients with primary, primary aldosteronism will require adrenal venous sampling. Um, that can be a problem that, that involves either both adrenal glands versus one adrenal gland. And really the only way to reliably sort that out is with adrenal venous sampling. CT generally won't tell you that, particularly as we get older, adrenal masses tend to be more common. There's an age-related incidence. And so anyone over the year of uh, uh, 35 years of age here will get venous sampling because the CT won't tell you. Even if you see a CT scan with a unilateral mass, that patient may have bilateral hyperplasia and then just a bland adenoma that's not producing anything. So again, you have to sample both adrenal glands to tell reliably, does that patient have a unilateral problem or bilateral problem? Which is important because the last thing you wanna do is take out the side with the mass and realize either they still have the problem or worse off, you took out the wrong adrenal gland. You know, it's, it's coming from the opposite side. And so, yeah, we do that very commonly with a primary aldosteronism. The second circumstance, which is I think uh, qu quite rare, if a patient has bilateral solitary nodules and they're producing too much cortisol, it can be very difficult to tell what side that's coming from. And, and what we found out is even if there's a size differential, it's not always coming from the larger mass. And so the way to sort that out is you test both adrenal, you sample both adrenal veins and see which side's producing more cortisol. Great. That was an excellent explanation for that. And sometimes complicated thing to really understand if you're not an endocrine surgeon. Um, okay. So now we've gotten through, you know, all of our workup and we'll make some uh, kind of variants here as, as time to come, but I really just want you, you to go through how, what are the approaches you can to take out an adrenal um, and what types of things do you use and how do you make the decision which way to go about it? Open versus laparoscopic versus robotic. Good. Yeah. It's a great question. It's also a bit of a controversial question, particularly with the, with the open approach. And we'll get into that. So um, the way I sort out the approaches, which there are many is really, it comes down to minimally invasive versus open. Um, and let's start with the minimally invasive approach. Uh, minimally invasive approach, there's kind of two ways to do that, two key ways here. And surgeons are split on which is the better way. And they, they tend to be pretty passionate about it. Number one is the traditional laparoscopic approach or transabdominal approach, where you put a patient up in the lateral decubitus position on the right or left, depending on which side you're taking out. And usually four trocars on either side. And so laparoscopically through the peritoneal cavity, you'll access the adrenal and you'll take it out. Then there's the retroperitoneoscopic approach where the patient is totally prone um, and you can take it out from the back in the retroperitoneum beneath the 12th, the 12th rib above the iliac crest. And that's usually a three trocar insertion uh, approach. And in that approach, again, you're, you're entering the retroperitoneum and insufflating it, but you are not entering the peritoneal cavity. You're sort of going directly above the kidney to the adrenal gland. It's a very direct approach. 
Both of them have their indications. Um, it's hard to say which one is better. And I think that's a logical question, which, which one's better. In all the studies, and there are a couple of randomized control trials, they are near equivalent. Um, there are a couple minor differences, but they're not really clinically relevant. They're near equivalent studies. And, and so if you look at a big study, it says they're near equivalent. But what I always express is that with any given single patient, they may have an indication or a variable that will push you one way or the other. A, an easy example is if a patient's had previous extensive surgery, and I've had a patient with, who had previous right hepatectomy, you can imagine getting to that right adrenal laparoscopically may be very difficult. Whereas if I go from the back and take that out retroperitoneoscopically on the right, I may not encounter any adhesions at all. And so any given patient may have something that pushes you one way or the other. So the thing that I always teach, and I taught Greg Pierce this, is don't just learn one way, learn both ways. You know, don't be the person that says, I'm going to do it this way in every single patient. You should be able to pick and choose the approach based on the patient morphology and tumor morphology. Um, as far as the open approach, and then robotic is another question. So when do you use the robot? Uh, you know, the robot's a tool. It's not necessarily an approach. And that tool, the robot, can be applied to either the, the uh, anterior approach or transabdominal approach or the retroperitoneoscopic approach. And uh, I don't think it's any better than laparoscopy. There's no study that shows it's better than laparoscopy for adrenal surgery in particular, but it can be utilized for either. Now, as far as the open approach, um, certainly an endocrine surgeon has to be well-versed in open adrenalectomy because at least in the U.S., and this is the controversial portion, but in the U.S., if you suspect something is adrenal cancer, primary adrenal cancer, so an adrenal cortical carcinoma, you should take that out in an open approach. What we know is with the best studies that we have, which are not wonderful studies, but the best data that we have, if you try to take out an adrenal cancer laparoscopically, the recurrence rate is earlier it's higher and it tends to be more local in, in, in the operative bed. And essentially what that suggests is it's probably seeding from rupture of the capsule of the tumor. Now in those studies, even if you control for that, and, and let's say you only look at the R0 sections. So the surgeon said they didn't rupture anything, still the recurrence rate is higher um, if done laparoscopically. The way I interpret that is probably there was some rupture of the capsule that wasn't identified and there was some seeding of the operative bed. And it makes sense, right? With, uh, you know, adrenal tumors are large. They can be very friable. They can break up. And you're picking that up with chopsticks, essentially, laparoscopically. It's much safer to do that with your, with your actual hand in there manipulating the tumor. Um, so it would make sense that the rupture rate is higher laparoscopically. Now, it gets very controversial when you're talking about smaller tumors. So stage one, stage two tumors. There are, there are studies from Europe that would suggest those can be done just as safely with a similar occurrence rate laparoscopically. So it's a bit controversial, but in the U.S. here, and anytime you're worried about adrenal cortical cancer, you're going to do that open. Got it. That should be the board answer. Yeah, that, I totally agree. That should be the board answer. That's kind of the safe way to go. Um, you know, with adrenal cancer in particular, you kind of got one shot at getting that right. It's, it's, a, it's a highly morbid disease, high mortality rate. And if you mess it up, you rupture the capsule, it's, it's a tough thing to recover from. So you get one shot to do it right. So rather than give the patient a small incision and have a rupture, I'd rather give them a big incision and get it done right. Give them the chance they deserve. Forgive me if this is a sounds like a silly question to you, but it actually happened recently. Um, very practical question is you're doing a laparoscopic adrenalectomy and you're in the lesser sac and or you're in the retroperitoneal space and you're just a little bit lost and you can't find that adrenal gland. How do you orient yourself and uh, what are your like the major landmarks to identify your adrenal gland? 
That, that's a great question. And that's, that's a wonderful learning question. And that's one of the things I always try to teach when I'm teaching the actual operation. So um, it's a bit different if you're doing it retroperitoneoscopically. Your landmarks change substantially because the patient's now prone. But we're just going to refer to the laparoscopic approach for this because that's the most common approach that people sh- and the approach they should learn first. Um, so on the left side, if you're lost, which can happen particularly in Cushing's because there's a lot of retroperitoneal fat with Cushing's with a fat redistribution, it's tough. Um, what you're doing is you're mobilizing the colon over, you're mobilizing the spleen over and the tail of the pancreas, and you're mobilizing that off of the kidney and the adrenal gland. A very good landmark to orient yourself is you look up at the diaphragm and you're looking at the phrenic vein on the diaphragm. If you remember your venous anatomy um, during the left adrenalectomy, the phrenic vein that runs off the diaphragm will drain in confluence with the adrenal vein before draining into the renal vein. So you can actually follow that phrenic vein off the the diaphragm. It's very easy to find on the diaphragm. You follow it down and that will lead you to the adrenal vein, which is one of the first structures you should should attempt to to find. Um, So it'll lead you to that structure. And I find that to be a very classic and reproducible landmark whenever you're lost. And you're right, it's easy to get lost. On the right side, what I always teach is that operation is entirely about the inferior vena cava because the bad thing that can happen with that operation is you injure the inferior vena cava. And so you have to find that inferior vena cava. It's not about finding the adrenal gland. It's about finding the inferior vena cava. And that lateral margin, the lateral wall of the inferior vena cava will lead you to the adrenal vein itself. So you start kind of low on the adrenal gland, work your way up. You'll find the adrenal vein there reliably in a very predictable location. There is some, uh, there is some aberration there, but um, most often it's very predictable. That by far is the most important landmark. If you're ever lost on the right side, the only thing you need to do is find the cava. Because again, the, the last thing you want to do is injure the cava thinking it's something else. I think that uh, is a great segue into kind of, I think what a lot of people are interested in is, uh, Travis, if you would just walk us through the operation, uh, pick, pick your favorite approach um, and, and tell us how, how, how you do it and, uh, and what other pearls and pitfalls should we keep in mind as we're uh, taking out, shucking out one of these adrenals. Yeah, let's talk about the left laparoscopic adrenalectomy, I think, because I think that's a, it's my favorite operation to do. It involves actually a bit more because you have to move more, more structures out of the uh-huh, way, yeah. a bit more mobilization than the right. So let's talk about that because adrenalectomy is actually two separate operations if you think about it. Um, on the left side, so first positioning is vitally important with adrenalectomy. What we do is we put them in lateral decubitus position, in this case, left side up if we're taking out the left side. And uh, the chest wall itself, I do prefer that to be 90 degrees lateral decubitus. I put them on a bean bag to help position them because you want them sort of locked in place. That also allows you to rotate the table back and forth as needed to use gravity as your assistant. Um, you're going to split the table at, at the, the kidney rest. You're going to split them so it's almost like a, an inverted V structure. That allows some separation between the costal margin and the iliac crest. Gives you a little bit more real estate, a little bit more uh, real estate for your trocar placement. So you want the skin between the costal margin and the iliac crest to be pretty tight, and that's kind of what you shoot for. I tilt their hips back ever so slightly because that gives me better sort of laparoscopic access to the, uh, to the costal margin and to get beneath the costal margin with my instruments. Um, the hips are tilted back at roughly 70 degrees or so, give or take. 
once they're positioned and draped out, I start with an optical trocar. I use the Visi port, um, neither here nor there. You can use, utilize whatever trocar access that you're, that you're safe with and effective with. Um, generally keeping the pressure at about 15, I keep the flow at 40. Uh, once, my, uh, one, once I have access with the Visi port, I usually place three other trocars. Now you can do the left side with three total trocars. I usually use four. In the sub-xiphoid region, I place a 12 millimeter trocar and that's for the surgeon's left hand. The camera port is the one we initially placed. That's near the umbilicus, um, roughly. And then I place another 12 millimeter in the right, left, sorry, left subcostal region for the surgeon's right hand. And then I place a five millimeter trocar in the left lateral subcostal region for the assistant trocar. Um, once the trocars are in, the first step is to identify the colon, the descending colon. You're going to mobilize that colon down. Now, a common pitfall that I find residents get into, and I did this myself as a resident and a fellow, is they go too high and too lateral. The obvious plane to get into is the plane that puts you behind the kidney. If you just kind of look at that, um, where the colon is, and you look for the cobwebs, where, where it looks like it's obvious you should dissect, oftentimes that's going to put you behind the kidney. And if you keep in mind, the mesocolon sort of wraps around medially off the kidney, going towards the, the, the feeding vessels off the aorta. And so you're, you're going to mobilize that colon medial off the kidney. Once the colon's mobilized, you're going you're to kind of carry that up to the splenic flexure to the inferior pole of the spleen. Now, after you've sort of gotten to the region of the inferior pole of the spleen, the colon's mobilized that far, you don't need to mobilize the transverse colon any further. What you do is you wrap around to the left side lateral to the spleen. You're going to mobilize the spleen in its entirety, off the kidney, off the diaphragm. That thing should be flapping in the breeze. Um, along with that, of course, you're mobilizing the tail of the pancreas. So you're mobilizing the spleen in its entirety. And, and of course, you're going to see the fundus of the stomach around the superior pole of the spleen. And that kind of shows you mobilized it entirely. In that area, you're going to find that phrenic vein on the diaphragm that we talked about, which is a great landmark for, for helping to trace down. Um, one of the things, I wish I could show you a picture. One of the things I visualize with this is a book. You're opening a book, right? On the left-hand page of that book that's opened, you're going to have the spleen, the pancreas, and the colon. It's been opened up. On the right-hand side, the right-hand page is the adrenal gland and the kidney. The spine of that open book, that's the phrenic vein running in that spine, and it's going to trace you right down to the adrenal vein. And so I often tell my residents to visualize an open book, um, and it's an open book dissection. There's no blood vessel that runs from the left page of that book to the right page of that book. Right. And so really what we've done thus far is just open avascular tissue. Conceivably, you can take a scissor and open that up if you wanted to. I, I use ligature for that, but uh, it's, it's avascular. If you're getting into a bleeding point or the tissue seems dense, you're probably in the wrong plane. And in which case you should back up, find the appropriate plane and then proceed with the dissection. So you're opening this book. After the spleen and the tail of pancreas are fully mobilized, on that right page, again, you have the kidney and the adrenal gland. Now you can start opening up Gerota's fascia, which is an encasing around the kidney and the adrenal gland. I usually open that with hook cautery. You can open that up, and essentially you're opening it up over the adrenal gland. Oftentimes here I use tactile feedback and visualize structures move, and I'll, I'll just kind of poke at the adrenal. I'll get a sense of where I think it is or where the mass is. I'll poke at the kidney, and I'll realize where that kidney is. You can make a pretty good educated guess with where the structures are based on that. Sometimes it's difficult with Cushing's with all the fat, for instance, or if a patient's obese, um, but oftentimes you can make a pretty good guess. Now, a key point, the next key point, and the next pitfall I encounter many people doing is they try to go with some stepwise approach for resecting the adrenal gland. Now, in my opinion, the best way to do this operation is you do what is safest first. If you do the safe and easy parts first, 
the hard parts will become easier. This is very different than like a gastric bypass that I also do. With a gastric bypass, there's a very stepwise approach. You know, step one, step two, step three, you have to follow the steps every single time. It's a repetitive operation. With this, you have some freedom. Um, attack the easy parts first and then deal with the hard parts last. Often what that translates into is I end up taking the adrenal vein as the last step in the operation or one of the last steps. I've mobilized the entire adrenal prior to that because the hard part and, and subsequently the more dangerous part is isolating the adrenal vein, particularly on the right side. Um, so if I have a choice about it, I'll preserve it till last. So some of the easier parts of the operation include dissecting the adrenal uh, gland itself or the tumor off of the top of the kidney. That's also a great landmark. The top of the kidney is pretty easy to find, and it has a pretty reproducible relationship with the, with, with the lateral aspect of the adrenal gland. So I'll separate the kidney from the adrenal. I'll separate the top of the adrenal gland from the diaphragm and from the psoas muscle. And those are easy things to do. There's not a lot of vasculature in that area. And now it gets a little bit more tricky and a little bit more vascular. You have to start taking some of the arteries. Um, you know, the, as you guys know, the arterial supply is really threefold off the phrenic, branches off the aorta, and then branches off the renal artery. Now, what, what people mistake is it's not really just three arteries going into the adrenal. There are three inflow sources, but it's kind of a nexus of arteries that wrap around the adrenal, almost like a sort of spider web. And that's the next step is to attack those. Those can be taken with ligature or cautery, dealer's choice. Uh, most of them are very, very small because they branch out and they, they decrease in size as they approach the adrenal gland. So largely I'll devascularize the adrenal gland. And usually that plane of devascularization is just to the left side of the phrenic vein. And again, that's easy to find and it's reproducible on the diaphragm. Um, I'll take all the arteries and narrow it down to the region of the adrenal vein. And then I'll take the adrenal vein. The way I do that is I, I singly clip it and then I divide the specimen side with the ligature. It's, it's a very secure. Many surgeons just use ligature, in fact, and don't use any clips at all. Hmm. First time I tried that, my scrub nurse freaked out though. So I had to, uh, had to go back to using clips. <laughs> Honestly, I sleep better with a clip though. Um, so that's kind of the approach. Again, one of the key things is just do what's easy first. Um, you have options. If something gets difficult and it's bleeding or you're confused about your anatomy, find an easier place to operate. Once you've mobilized those easy things first, the rest of the operation becomes so much easier because you have better access. You can move the adrenal gland around a little bit more, usually localized with your important structures a little bit better. That being said, uh, just uh, with a few of the pitfalls, you already mentioned if it's not easy, you know, you're probably in the wrong plane. What other types of pitfalls? Is there anything else you can think of that's a common thing that you may get yourself into? Yeah, a, a key question I always get asked is particularly with pheochromocytoma. The question is, do you take the vein first or do you take it last? And there's a couple teaching points. The classic teaching point is you, you, you take it first, right? If, if you ask a medical student that and they've read surgical recall or something, they'll tell you, you take the, the vein with the FIO first. Um, I can tell you that's not always the case. And I, I've made a, a mistake in my career that I'll tell you about. That was a very scary thing. So um, the short story is you can take the vein first or last, and it depends on the clinical scenario. So let's say you're operating on a FIO and the anesthesiologist is freaked out because the blood pressure is 250 and they can't control it. And every time you touch this thing, the blood pressure goes up and you just can't progress the operation. That may be a reasonable indication to take the vein first, because in that circumstance, you can clip that vein and divide it. And reliably, the catecholamine excess is going to drop very quickly. And the half-life of catecholamine is very short. And then they're going to be fighting the hypotension. So that's a reasonable place to do that. But if you're operating on a big FIO, which tends to be very vascular, if you take that vein early before you've taken the arteries, you've taken the outflow without taking the inflow. And that tumor is going to develop intratumoral hypertension. And that's a very scary situation because if that capsule at all gets injured or ruptured, 
that thing bleeds like crazy. And it's very hard to stop until you've totally devascularized it. And I got to, a, I got into a circumstance very early in my career. In fact, I think it was my first, first week here at the Mayo Clinic. I was operating on a 13 centimeter FIO. And uh, I, I decided to take the vein early because we had some hypertension. Um, and that's never a mistake I want to make again. Uh, so I did that. And basically 10 units of blood later, I got the thing out. And this was my first week on staff. The next, uh, the next uh, day I went to my, my mentor's office, Jeff Thompson, who's a giant in endocrine surgery. He said, oh yeah, I should have told you that. Never take the pain first. So usually I'll preserve the vein unless I have to take it because uncontrolled hypertension. And that being said, the anesthesiologists nowadays tend to be very effective at managing hypertension. They have great medications for that. Generally, the patient's maximally blocked. And so, so it's an unusual circumstance where the hypertension is so profound or recalcitrant that you can't make progress with the operation. So generally, the vein goes last. Speaking of, uh, you know, what anesthesia is furiously doing in the back for a FIO, I think we'd be remiss to, to the interns, medical students, and absite 99 percenters if uh, we didn't ask you to discuss preoperative blockade real quick for, for the FIO. Yeah, it's, an, it's a very important topic and something you never want to miss. Um, so so absite is one thing, but also the boards, a common scenario on boards, right? Um, and I, this is one of my questions. So on boards, um, as far as uh, or, or absite, when you're, when you're dealing with a pheochromocytoma, you either suspect a pheo or you know it's a pheo for whatever reason, that patient has to be blocked. Now, um, it, nowadays, it's a bit more controversial how to do that, and we have a number of options. The classic way we do this, and the way we still do this at the Mayo Clinic, is alpha blockade. We have a couple options there. What we would usually use here at the Mayo Clinic was phenoxybenzamine, um, nonspecific alpha blocker. That medication is very expensive. It's difficult to get, difficult to push through insurance. The patients get very symptomatic with it. And it leads to a relatively high rate of post-operative hypotension because the long half-life, after you've done with the operation and you've uh, solved the catecholamine problem, that medication lingers around. So that's kind of an older medication. Um, one of the newer things we use, not necessarily new, but uh, newer to us here, is we use Cardura or doxazosin. It's a it's a selective alpha blocker. It's relatively easy for the patient to get access to as far as our cost and insurance. Um, it has less postoperative hypotension, but still very effective and safe. So generally, that's our go-to. That's an alpha blocker. We generally institute that two weeks before surgery, depending on the patient and circumstances, but usually at least two weeks before surgery. That's titrated up very, very closely. Um, here, it's done by our endocrinology colleagues, but, but any sort of physician could do it. It's really a matter of titrating that medication to uh, orthostatic hypotension. And it does kind of run them down. They feel lousy. They have the stuffy nose. They get up and they feel dizzy. Um, but two weeks before surgery, start that. The classic teaching is you're going to want to start that before you start beta blockade. That's one of the pitfall questions on the ab site. Um, you don't want unopposed beta blockade in the absence of alpha blockade in these patients. That can lead to severe hypertension. Now, in addition to blockade, one thing we always want to do with these patients is we really want to load them up with fluid. Um, now, the reason for that is patients who have pheochromocytoma tend to be intravascularly deplete. Now, even though they have high blood pressure, their vascular volume is very constricted. So they have essentially a small tank, right? And as soon as we take out that pheo, they have a vasoplegic effect where their vasculature dilates. Now, if you haven't uh, tanked them up first and their vessels dilate, that relative intravascular volume is very low. That's a setup for severe hypotension, the need for pressors postoperatively. And so the way we get around that is we really tank them up. Um, we give them essentially over three to five days, tell them to eat whatever they want as far as salt goes. The one time in their life they're liberalized to eat all the things they, they usually can eat. You know, They can go to Pizza Hut and eat pizza, French fries, hamburgers, whatever, whatever they want to eat. 
they uh, also push the fluid, um, Gatorades, et cetera. You have to be a little bit uh, careful with patients with congestive heart failure um, and loading them up very rapidly and quickly, but that's generally what we do. Uh, an old way of doing this is you'd admit them to the hospital the night before surgery and then sort of more gently um, hydrate them with, uh, with saline infusion. You still can do that in patients with CHF or if you're concerned for some other reason, but generally just outpatient salt and fluid loading is the way we get around that. And when you do that effectively and you're operating on the right side, you'll see the inferior vena cava tends to be very robust. It's very, you can see it's just, it's, it's, it's full of fluid and that's what you want. Um, that can ward off post-operative hypotension. Again, if you don't do that, you may be dealing with the case of the patient has to be in the ICU for two days after surgery, after a very uncomplicated operation, just because of vasoplegia. And you're, you have to give them pressors, but you're giving them catecholamines back essentially because you're fighting that vasoplegic effect. So that's, that's generally our, our method of blockade. There are other options. There are some groups in Europe that don't block at all, and they just deal with it uh, from the anesthesia perspective. Um, that is exceptionally controversial and not something I'd recommend doing, but there are studies that suggest that can be done safely with, with current era anesthesia. Um, some people deal with uh, um, this with calcium channel blockers, both preoperatively and intraoperatively. Um, so there are other options, but alpha and beta blockade is generally what we institute here. Well, if we're being charitable to those, uh, to those you know, weirdo Europeans, what, what, uh, what benefit do they claim, you know, can be gained from not doing preoperative blockade? Uh, really three things. So one is um, some of these medications are difficult to get and expensive, not all of them, but some of them are. So you can bypass that altogether. That's not a big issue nowadays with Cardura. That's a uh, relatively cheap and easy to get. Number two is uh, blocking a patient for two weeks. Uh, it sounds easy enough, but from the patient's perspective, it's a terrible thing. You really run them down. Um, if I had some magic switch and dropped your blood pressure down to 80 and made you orthostatic, you're just going to feel lousy. Um, they get a stuffy nose. They can't sleep at night because they have the stuffy nose. So patients describe essentially being miserable. So again, you can bypass that part of it too. And then finally, if you have no blockade on board or only short-term blockade from the OR, you're not going to have a high rate of post-operative hypotension. And there are a certain portion of the population that end up needing ICU care because of post-operative vasoplegia. Nowadays, that's a low rate, um, probably about 10% in our series here, um, but it's not zero. And ICU care, as you know, is very expensive. Right, right. Well, sp speaking of post-operative care, what other uh, wisdom can you impart on us? I know it, it very much depends on what, you know, what you were taking out in the first place. But, you know, for example, if you were uh, removing a, a cortisol-secreting tumor, um, what, what should we look forward to post-operatively? How, how do you manage these patients? No, I'm, I'm glad you asked that particular question because that, that's a question of vital importance. And patients have died um, from from number one, not knowing they had cortisol excess. And because of that, number two, not being replaced effectively or appropriately. So it comes down essentially this, anytime you're removing any tumor um, of the adrenal gland, you need to know the, the answer to the question, is that tumor producing cortisol in excess? Doesn't matter if it's an adrenal cortical cancer or a small benign uh, cortical adenoma. If it is producing cortisol unilaterally, oftentimes contralaterally, that other normal adrenal gland will be suppressed and it takes time to kick in, it doesn't happen immediately. And it's not just the adrenal gland, it's the hypothalamic pituitary axis that's suppressed. And so if they are producing excess cortisol autonomously, you need to either watch them very, very closely postoperatively, or more commonly, just replace steroids, meaning giving them a stress dose of steroids, usually 50 to 100 of hydrocortisone IV in the OR. And then usually what we do here is 50 IVQ8 hydrocortisone until they're taking uh, 
at adequate PO, and then we switch them to either PO hydrocortisone or prednisone. Now, eventually that can be tapered off, but it's variable on how long it takes to taper off those oral steroids, sometimes even six months to a year if the patient's producing a lot of cortisol from the, from the mass that you took out. Sometimes if it's just subclinical Cushing's and they're producing just a whiff of cortisol, oftentimes you can taper them off pretty rapidly. Our endocrinology colleagues help with that, but they watch it very closely. They can also do some provocative testing of the adrenal with cosentropin stimulation testing to make sure that contralateral adrenal is effectively producing cortisol. If it's not, that is a life-threatening scenario and patients have died in such ways. So is it just cortisol uh, producing tumors where you worry about post-operative adrenal insufficiency or in what other scenarios would you worry about it? If the contralateral adrenal gland looks totally normal on CT scan, it's perfusing and it looks like it's normal shape, symmetry size, I'm usually not too worried about that patient. The, the risk of life-threatening adrenal insufficiency is exceptionally low. But sometimes you have an adrenal gland that looks atrophic or you have an adrenal gland that has another mass in it. One of the common things we see is uh, metastatic disease, bilateral masses. If you have a mass in the contralateral adrenal gland, I think it's uh, in something you have to assume that the, until proven otherwise, that, that contralateral adrenal is not going to be producing enough cortisol. It's incumbent upon us to prove that. Um, but yeah, cortisol is kind of the big scenario. There are a couple uh, metabolic electrolyte issues with aldosterone. Um, if you're taking out a tumor for primary aldosteronism and aldosteronoma, those patients uh, can have recalcitrant hyperkalemia that can be life-threatening um, uh, post-operatively. So we monitor their potassium very closely, usually post-operative day one, and then weekly for four weeks, we'll watch their potassium. That again can be a life-threatening problem, as you guys know, um, hyperkalemia. Well, all right. I hope it. I hope we haven't uh, completely drained your brain this uh, this weekend. You know, we always like to end the show kind of on a on a lighter note, a little bit more levity, Travis. So we're going to ask you our a classic behind the knife final five. Uh, first question is: uh, Are you reading a book right now that's non medical related? What What can you share with us in your literary adventures? Yeah, yeah, I read a lot, actually. So I just finished a trilogy. Uh, I'm kind of big into sci-fi right now. Um, so, you know, the, uh, the Elon Musk company just uh, shot a couple astronauts into space, and I've watched, I've watched some of the uh -huh. videos of those rockets landing, and this got, this got me on this uh, space and sci-fi kick, something I've never really been into. But I've, I've been reading a bunch of books, um, uh, sci-fi related. Just finished a trilogy. That's the Red Rising trilogy um, by, by Pierce Brown. Fantastic oh, nice. trilogy if you're into sci-fi. I'm actually watching, so I'm a big into sci-fi as well, uh, both books and uh, and uh, you know movies, I suppose. And I'm watching The Expanse right now. Have you? Have you? Yeah, I know seen what it is. Show? I haven't watched it. Yeah. On oh, you know, if you're into sci-fi, especially hard sci-fi, you know, that's very physics-heavy. That's that's yeah. a really wonderful okay. show. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Uh, do you listen to Do you listen to music in the OR? Oh yes, that's an essential. I just uh, just in fact got uh, the the Apple HomePod. I have it at home. You know the big speaker, the big uh -huh. round speaker. Got one for the OR, and uh, I love that thing. Yeah, we listen to music every single day. So what mix of things? It's, yeah, uh, yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, what what's the mix comprised of? What is the mix not comprised of? I feel as often. Honestly, the, it's the a little bit question. of everything. There's a little bit of everything. Um, sort of one of the things I love is is '90s grunge, but I can't always <laughs> listen to that because I have. There's a big age gap in my OR. Number one, uh, number yeah, two, there's yeah. a big sort of a taste gap, and you know, one way or the other, it, we listen to everything from from some '90s grunge to country. We listen to a lot of '80s pop. Listen, uh, it's a little bit of jazz, so it's very eclectic. Do you listen cool. to any podcasts? Not in the OR, obviously. 
I'm not a big podcast listener, actually. In fact, uh, um, I just got uh, just got introduced to yours maybe a couple months ago by Greg Pierce, and I've been catching up on that. But I have not listened to podca- podcasts uh, historically. Well, we're glad that we could be uh, your first podcast. That's quite now, that's quite an honor. Now, I can tell you this. Um, so, after hearing about your podcast from Greg Pierce. I discovered and found out most of my residents listen to your podcast here at the Mayo Clinic. And we have a lot of residents, but, but they love it. Wow. Yeah, All right. Excellent. And our oh, residents are going to love your episode here. This is really I hope so. going well. You guys are doing good work here though. Oh, we appreciate that. Okay. Question, question three or, you know, the 3.5, if you were to compete in the Olympics and we'll give you the choice, winter, summer, what have you, what, uh, what event would that be? And it's okay if you are not very sporty or you don't actually play that sport. That's, that's fine. What, what's, what appeals to you? What seems cool? Golly. So the sport I'm most interested in is not in the Olympics, but if you're pinning me down to Olympic sport, probably triathlon. I, I, I've, I've done quite a few triathlons and enjoy that. Um, less nowadays than I used to, certainly, but uh, probably triathlon. And what's that non-Olympic sport? We, we, we can start a petition for you. If you'd like. Oh, that'd be great. So um, uh, really climbing and mountaineering, um, alpinism. So I, I just got back from uh, Grand Teton National Park and did a big traverse in the Teton Range. And I do a lot of that. Growing up in Alaska, that was kind of a rite of passage. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that makes sense. Alaskans are all about that, huh? Um, Favorite vacation spot. Do you take much vacation? Yeah, it's easy to answer. The Tetons. Yeah. So, so I, I take as many as I can. I have, uh, as I mentioned, four young kids at home. So I'm a bit limited on where and sort of what I can do. But uh, every year I try to go to the Tetons and do a bit of climbing out there. I'm trying to go this winter again to do some skiing out there too. But uh, Grand Teton National Park is an amazing place. Highly recommend it. I've never been. What, uh, Megan, have you been there? I have been there, and I love the reason why it's called the Grand Tetons. My favorite thing. Wait, what's the reason? I, <laughs> I'm in the dark. Well, because it looks like something. You're gonna have to look it up. Okay, <laughs> I got it. I'll Google it. All right, last last question. Um, perhaps the most personal, but what would you be uh, doing if not medicine? Honestly, the only other thing that I wanted to be professionally was a professional baseball player when I was very young. And, and short of that, that was when I was a young teenager. Short of that, I've always wanted to be a, a physician of some sort. I didn't discover surgery until I was a medical student, but, uh, but a physician. So I was kind of on that path. I guess if you pin me down now, I'd, uh, something else I do is uh, I enjoy pottery. I don't get to do it as nearly as much as I like, but uh, maybe a professional uh, potter. Wow. I, I, don't, I don't think we've ever heard that one on, on behind the knife. You know, you do, you hear a lot of kind of similar archetypes among surgeons when you host a bunch of them, but pottery is unique. Yeah. What, what kind of pottery? Uh, wheel thrown pottery, ceramic pottery. Yeah. Well, very cool. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's all I got for, for, for now. We have to host you again sometime, uh, Travis, maybe, maybe an episode on bariatrics or something. You've been a wonderful guest. I gotta, can't thank you enough for taking some time out of the weekend, uh, to record with us. That's my pleasure. You guys are fantastic. I really enjoyed uh, being on here with you today. Thank you for the invitation. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.